Daredevil is a lot like Batman in that they both ultimately hope for redemption of their foes. They hope that somehow they'll turn around. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dalski. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a good life, a happy life, a more knowledgeable life. In this episode, we have returning star guest, author of Daredevil and Philosophy. And he's written about Marvel Comics and Philosophy, and I think this is his fourth or fifth time on the pod, Mark D. White. I think this is his fourth time. I don't think he's a number <laughs> yes. fiver yet, but but I think five, I don't think we've had five we guests Thor, on five times. Thor, Batman, and Captain America, and this time it's Daredevil. That's right. This episode is about a Daredevil. I must admit, particular superhero that I was never really fond of growing up. I wasn't a huge Daredevil fan, and I must admit as well that uh, the film version of Daredevil did me no benefit and did no benefit for the Daredevil character. However, we do discuss the film Daredevil and why would we even talk about Daredevil? Why is it interesting to talk about this character? And shockingly, this discussion becomes an analysis on romance. Like how we go <laughs> yes, from a, the a comic yeah. book discussion to romance. That's how like just diverse and just amazing Mark is as a guest because he's a he, he's a philosopher, he's a teacher, he's a, he's an author, he's a he knows everything and anything there is to know about comic books. Yet he is also a avid advice columnist on dating for I think it was what was it psychology, psychology today, today. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable this guy so if you don't like daredevil but you want to hear some advice about romance please please stay in tune in this episode you will learn a lot about romance yeah with his work he weaves in the moral tales behind these great figures and also what does it are these great comic figures and what does it say about us what makes them heroes and this conversation actually started out a little bit differently than what we did with like Batman and Captain America, but the reality of Daredevil being blind. And how does that play into our notion of what it means to be a hero and maybe challenge our ideas about abled bodies or bodies that are differently abled or have a disability and how does society structure it? So the conversation starts out really interesting in that capacity. And then we talk about the moral development and character of Daredevil. And yeah, then we talk a bit about romance. This is a great episode. We, we touched all the bases with this one. Agreed. <laughs> what are we going to call it? Oh, boy. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, it could it be as simple as being a Daredevil in romance? No. Um, of, uh, <laughs> dared, I don't know. Um, analyzing Daredevil and romance we can we can i think we should just do analyzing daredevil really but no we got to bring the romance in there it, romance is really important i think i dare i say dare i say that's the real secret sauce of this episode is, is the romantic <laughs> part of it but i but i defer I, I defer to you you know you are the the end poster of the, our episodes okay well we're talking with mark d white about daredevil and some romance Mark, I just want to let you know that, you know, we know that you were on another podcast before this one to talk about the book Daredevil, and we will not hold that against you. We'll just hold it against <laughs> Leon and Alan, but <laughs> welcome back to Good is in the Details. Yeah, we're talking about Daredevil. So, you know, 
Actually, can I, I, I think I want to go back to what Rudy said. I have not been able to get it out of my mind now that I've been thinking about this interview and prepping for this. Is Daredevil the only one of the Marvel superheroes who has a type of disability? Like the superpower is actually as a result of that, that that's part of what makes a superpower? Because I was going through all the different comic figures and I can't think of one. Well, the main one that pops to mind, you know, maybe it's just because she just had a series on Disney Plus and she was introduced as a character in the Daredevil comics is Echo. Mm -hmm. And Echo is hearing impaired. I think she, I think she's completely deaf. In the comics, what this granted her was the ability to watch body movements very closely and learn them very well and duplicate them. So basically, she can watch someone dance and replicate the dance movement. And, and more importantly, in the, in the realm of superheroing, she can watch somebody fight and then duplicate their fighting style. Oh, that's which cool. is obviously a tremendous advantage when you're fighting somebody. Uh, there's a villain taskmaster that does the same thing, but that's more of just a supernatural ability. As far as other superheroes with disabilities, there are uh, several characters in wheelchairs. Professor Xavier of the X-Men, Charles yeah. Xavier, is classically, he's not currently, you know, he goes in and out of it. He's not currently in the wheelchair, but he was for many years. Barbara Gordon, the original Batgirl in DC Comics, was shot by the Joker in an infamous storyline in the late 80s. She used a wheelchair for many years. And actually, this was probably the most inspiring example of this, is she found a new way to to be a superhero in being uh, adopting the name Oracle and becoming sort of the information conduit to the superhuman community. So she would be, you know, the person in the chair. You know how, how you know every every superhero or spy has a person in the chair, someone on their comms that's watching the computers and handling the communications. And she was basically this for all the superheroes, and she could do it even better than most because she was a former superhero herself. And in 2011, when DC rebooted their entire line and they, they made Barbara Gordon Batgirl again and seemingly erased her background as Oracle. There's a lot of pushback and disappointment, especially from the disabled community, that there was such an effective superhero and role model in the universe who didn't let the fact that she used a wheelchair stand in the way of her making a tremendous contribution to the overall superhero effort. And they felt that even giving her use of her legs back and making her Batgirl again while that was inspirational in its own way, that kind of removed one of the most effective and inspirational examples of a person with a disability being a, a true superhero. Yeah, um, well, with the, the Daredevil character, it reminded me of this technology that I had read about not too long ago, where there is a device where somebody can, if somebody um, has lost their vision, that there's like this lollipop type thing that they can put on their tongue and be able to quote unquote see by using their taste buds. It was just so interesting because of the way that the brain is able to rewire itself. Because when you think about vision, your eyeballs aren't actually, they're just one mechanism for the senses, but you can use other parts of your body in order to gain that information. Hmm. Have you heard of that or no? I'm gonna have no, to no, sense. but that does this does remind me of the way that Daredevil's you know radar sense is usually conceptualized. Yeah. Is that all of his other senses come together, enhanced by the radioactivity he was exposed to, and give him sort of a? It's usually depicted in the comic books as kind of like a contour map of what's around him. Yeah, you know, he obviously can't see color. He can't see fine details. He can't see the image in a photograph. 
but he can, you know, see the people moving around him. He can see bullets coming at him. He can, he can see the buildings that he jumps over when he goes through New York City. If I, if I can plug my friend's book, Christine Hanafalk, she was a critical person in the Save Daredevil movement that brought the TV show back. She has a book about the science of Daredevil, and she is a scientist herself. She has a master's degree in science, and she's had a lifelong fascination with the science behind how this radar sense would work. She knows more about blindness than anybody I know. She has she has researched all of this extensively. I've read her book; it's amazing, but you know, it's far above me. I mean, well, that's what's interesting about the Daredevil is that it's reflecting an actual possibility with the way in which our brains are wired. I mean, not to the extent of Daredevil, but right. I think just talking about people with a disability in these figures are making us, um, I think what I like about them is that they're making us rethink what constitutes a disability or what constitutes pity or something like that or value right. or worth. These characters are showing that the quote unquote disability is not a subtraction of their character, but it's actually an enhancement sure. of other areas. And I really like that message. Do you know if you said with the one character who's in the wheelchair, that the, the community you know, was not happy about removing that. Do you know if there was a response about the Daredevil character in that framework? Uh, yeah, about Daredevil himself? Yeah, or about being about being blind. Like, was there any kind of like a cultural response to that? Like, oh, this is important to bring more awareness or to not look at blind as you can't do anything or I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that he has a lot of, of fans that are vision impaired. Mm -hmm. Either, you know, I don't know if he necessarily has more of them, but they're more outspoken of, about the fact that they appreciate the character, and especially when the writers and artists take particular care to, you know, make sure to remind the readers that, you know, even though he has this enhanced radar sense that compensates to a certain degree for his blindness, he still is blind. He still can't see. And so when you know, uh, Rudy brought up the movie before. Daredevil fans don't talk about the movie very much, but but some of the great things they did in the movie was there's a the whole montage where Matt lays out his money and lays out his dollar bills in such a way that the you know, they're positioned differently, so we can tell the ones from the fives, from the tens, etc. And all the things he does to with his clothes, he color codes his clothes with different hangers, so he, he can tell what he's wearing. All of these things. And I'm obviously not going to speak for any community other than that I'm not a part of. But, you know, from what I've seen, the vision impaired readership of Daredevil really appreciates this. And the fact that, again, when he's written well, it's not that his radar sense and his radioactivity enhanced senses make up for being blind. They just allow him to perceive the world in a different way not as good as as traditional sight in some ways and it's better in other ways but it still leaves him with a very distinct and unique way of perceiving the world that is not exactly the same as sighted people but gives him certain you know superhero advantages to make the stories exciting and rudy how do you feel that the superhero is a lawyer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect segue. I mean, really, I, I what I what I love is a little bit of the backstory about how he had promised his father that he would never get into a fight, and he had gotten into a fight, and his dad got drunk and slapped him, and that had a lasting effect upon him. And he decided that wow, even even somebody who I admired, like my father, broke a rule. People need rules; they need laws. As a result of that. He, 
that was that's what made him decide to become an attorney. And it's pre- it's just it's just kind of it's pretty interesting because you think about it, we are imperfect, right? Humans are imperfect. One way to strive towards being better human beings and to live together in a society and social order moving forward is to have laws and have consequences of when those laws get broken. So I can relate. I mean, I'm somebody who is absolutely imperfect, 150% imperfect. That's not the reason why- At least. At least 150, (laughs) if not 175, maybe 179. But I agree with the statement in that I recognize my imperfections. And that is one of the reasons why I'm passionate about the law is because we need laws for our society. I talk about litigation. Going through law school, I kind of got this sense of, okay, what did litigation replace? You know, back in the day, if you offended somebody, you would go and you would have a duel or you would have a shootout at sundown in the, in the old West. That's how things were dictated back in the day was, okay, you offend me. It's going to result in this duel. And that's like, okay, well, wait a minute, death. Like, does that really make sense? Like there's got to be kind of a pecking order. Like we need rules to follow because humans are so imperfect and it's so great that that's, I mean, that's kind of Daredevil's core is his recognition of the imperfections of humans. And he's doing what he can in order to, as an attorney, in order to make humans better. And when they don't at night, he's he's a superhero. So I, I can definitely relate to Daredevil in, in that respect. Being a superhero. Yeah, being, being, being a superhero and, and a lawyer. And a podcaster. That's, and, that's and quite a, an achievement. And a podcaster. That, that's my kind of soliloquy, Gwen. I know that's, I, <laughs> I know you actually asked how I felt, so that's how I feel. I was like, now we should hear from a, the lawyer community. As a lawyer, you can see what it feel like to be represented as a superhero. If there's a question for Mark that comes out of that, <laughs> I would say, Mark, what do you think about lawyers and their role in society? <laughs> How about that? Let's just let's turn this right around and put it on Mark. Because you know what I think about philosophers. <laughs> Not <laughs> lawyers, Mark. I mean, that's interesting because most of the classes I teach deal with the law in one way or another. I usually teach either legal philosophy or law and economics. Other chairperson, department chair that I work with most closely is a lawyer. He's the chair of the political science department, and he has a law degree and a PhD in political science. So uh, I, I actually think about lawyers a lot more than I probably should, even when I'm not writing a book about a superhero that is one. It, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question. I mean, there's so many different roles that lawyers play. Usually, bring this back to Matt Murdock, usually he is a plaintiff's attorney who likes to specialize in helping the underprivileged, the oppressed, you know, fight the system, fight the man, fight landlords, you know, dirty landlords, rotten bosses, corrupt politicians. And definitely that plays an important role in helping people with less power confront people with more. That's what Matt Murdock tries to do in most of his work. He's been a defense attorney. He's been a prosecutor. But most of his most, you know, over over the entire span of his of his career, not just the short period that I write about in the book, his early years, early years, he's, he's mainly a, a plaintiff's attorney. Shortly after the period I write in the, about in the book, though, after he's lost his law license, he uh, actually opens a free legal clinic and has to go around asking for donations to fund it. But he just wants to provide, you know, that's that's his ultimate goal is is helping the underprivileged and oppressed 
use the rules that society has established and hold the powerful accountable to them. I'm trying to figure out why I'm so fascinated by him. In your book, there seems to be, uh, let me see, how do I want to put it? There's extremes. Like he seems to be, I think you said, mm -hmm. more, more violent. And he also feels more responsibility. And I don't know, that kind of broke my heart because I was thinking about how yeah. the collision between the rational and the emotional happens where logically you know that there is a point in which you're no longer responsible legally, but we can still feel that even though rationally exactly. it's not there. And I think the other yeah. thing that Matt feels everything. Yeah. Matt, Matt is such a passionate person and he goes out on a limb so much to help people. And then he feels tremendous responsibility in case it doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't, he doesn't take much pride or satisfaction in things that do go well, but he, he feels very intensely the things that don't. And he tries to do so much that it's almost preordained that he's going to feel bad at the end because he holds himself to such an impossible standard, which is fairly common for superheroes. But for one without any, you know, without any traditional real superpower like super strength or speed or flight or invulnerability, he's got the enhanced senses and a tremendous athleticism. But other than that, he is, you know, a fairly normal guy that has to take cuts or take bullets or gets tired or, but he, he pushes himself to an unbelievable extent. Wait, I'm sorry. Are you guys are you guys still talking about me, or are you guys talking about <laughs> Matt or Daredevil? Because I I, 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 I I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I, can't, I, mean, I, I, I mean, literally, if just if I if I wasn't paying attention, I'd be like, wait, I can't tell if they're actually talking about me because <laughs> I feel things. I mean, I God, I I can relate because I have these intense feelings, and I do actually try to help. I try to help so much that it actually just causes damage and then I just fail. I could totally relate to this character and just I needed to hear how similar he is. I mean, it's pretty crazy that somebody wrote this level of detail, the, the this level of character description when it comes to Daredevil. That That's why I, I, I kind of almost just like feel bad for Daredevil, Mark, because like, no offense, not to go back to the movie, but it didn't do the character justice, did it? Not really. Not really. I mean, I think I, I tend to take a, a less critical opinion of it than a lot of dedicated Daredevil fans. In that, if we, especially if we hadn't had the Netflix series more recently, which was incredible. In light of that, it makes the movie look worse than it was. Mm. I think at the, at the time it was made and the superhero movies on the whole were still fairly young. And I, th I think it was a, a decent effort. I just think it was a little more campy than a lot of people wanted. You know, most Daredevil fans really appreciate the dark and more realistic tone of the Netflix series, now Disney Plus series. And, you know, looking back on the, the Daredevil movie, it's, it's a little more fantastical. It's a little more goofy. The whole fight on the playground is ridiculous. But the rest of it, you know, you see, I thought Ben Affleck did a good job. He shows the pathos without necessarily showing the despair of the character, especially the villains, the Kingpin and Bullseye were shown to be a little more, a little more comic booky, mm -hmm. where the, the Netflix show tends to be more, slightly more superhero-y law and order. And now a quick break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode of Good is in the Details. CLM Creations is a small woman-owned business with an innovative new hairstyling tool that Sherry, the founder, spent 10 years developing to give her thin, straight hair, body, and lift. It did everything that a diffuser attachment did for her and more, while being much easier to travel with. 
After her breast cancer diagnosis in 2020, Sherry decided that she wasn't going to let cancer beat her. Radiation treatment caused her hair to thin and break off while detangling. Because of this, she discovered that her new hairbrush could detangle and minimize further damage. She decided to manufacture and sell her patented hairbrush. The CLM Volumizer was born. The CLM Volumizer is a three-in-one hair tool that works as a diffuser, a brush, and styling device that will detangle and amp up the volume while creating natural-looking curls, beach waves, or straighter locks. Go to our show notes to get your link to CLM Volumizer and use offer code GOOD15 for a discount. And now back to the show. Can we take the position that the fact that Daredevil is blind, henceforth it's a disability, henceforth he's not perfection, is that blindness just another personification for fans or people to remember humans aren't perfect? Because I feel like that's the underlying theme of everything related to Daredevil is it actually, for other people out there, who are not perfect and recognize that they're not perfect and sometimes beat themselves up because they're not perfect, i.e. myself. It's like, hey, you know what? There's this character. He's not perfect either. We are not perfect. This world is not perfect. You just got to do the best you can, follow the rules. Do you think that that's one element of the blindness and the upfront disability, Mark? Is that is that reminder for us to just kind of have some grace with ourselves? Or is, am I just reading into this too much? Well, I think that's true, but it's not unique to Daredevil because all of the original Marvel heroes introduced in the 60s by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and, and Steve Ditko, all of them were designed to have some... I don't want to say flaw because, you know, disability is not a flaw, but you right. know, so- something that makes them different from the what the DC Comics heroes who were written very blandly, very perfect, very noble, very ideal. No, no, no. They never did anything wrong. They never questioned themselves. And so when, when Lee and, and Kirby and Ditko designed the bulk of the Marvel characters in the 60s, each one of them had a flaw or a setback or a problem from the beginning that made them all more human than Superman or Wonder Woman or even Batman. So you had Peter Parker with his insecurity and the fact that he made a mistake that led to the death of his uncle Ben. You have Tony Stark with the the, the heart problem from the explosion that led to him designing the armor. Each of the original Marvel superheroes had their own issues or flaws or problems or psychoses that made them all more human than you know, a, an alien that crash landed from Krypton or a woman that came from a paradise island and had the powers of a goddess. Yeah. And, and maybe that's why, and I'll, and I'll take that just like another step further. And maybe that's why at least prior to 2023 or prior to 2022, the Marvel universe fans couldn't get enough of it. I mean, yes, yeah. there was a lot of material, but the relatability of these characters, right. the fact that the, that the flaw is up. Once again, I'm, I'm not saying that being blind is, is a flaw in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying, I mean, right. if you're thinking about perfect human beings, it, it's a marker of imperfection if you if you hold to that standard. But you know, if I can jump in here for a second, sure. I think of it as society makes it a flaw because society is not set up for people with vision impairment. Absolutely, that's so. It's it's not a it's not a inherent intrinsic flaw. It's a setback because society is not set up for people with impaired vision. Just like society is not set up for people who are neurodiverse. Although you know we're making right. stri- we're making strides to that. Right. Thank God. Or, ha- or have alternative sexualities or genders. I mean, it's it's society's problem, not their problem. 
That's exactly that's that's exactly right. right. And it is that relatability that made those movies successful. Obviously, yes. at this point, saturation, um, enough is enough. Obviously, we're focusing on Daredevil here, but I do wonder what the future will bring of, of these stories. But yeah, I don't know. I, I love Matt's human nature mm-hmm. and his acceptance of the imperfections of humanity. My, it's my favorite thing about this character. And part of that also, even though it's not influ- not gone into as much in the early 25 years that I cover in the book, that does relate to his Catholicism that is emphasized more and more in later years which of course stresses the flawed nature of, of, of human beings. I think before his father hit him, Matt had an appreciation of this because he was taught this at church and catechism that human beings are flawed. And even with the, the, the grace of God and forgiveness and the sacraments, we still need structure to go back to what you said about rules. We still need structure in society to help keep us along the proper, the moral path. And then they say, Mark, you go out there and, and, you, and if you go out there and you read entrepreneurial books or you read books about how people did things, you know what they say? They say, well, you got to break some rules. Yeah. And it's so hard, right? It's you know, rigidity, you know, how rigid should you be to the rules? Why was that rule put into place? Is that an ethical rule or is that some, is just because that's the way arbitrary, business is done? Yeah. Or is it an arbitrary rule to keep the people or that have power? Or is it serve power? someone else's interest? Yeah, yeah right. It's so, it's it's very interesting. I don't, I, Gwen, I, any insights here on, on rules and, and, and rule breaking? Yeah, I have this question because Mark, it's, you frame him as a, a more like a Kantian with this adherence to rules. Yeah, yeah in, a, in a very simple okay. way. I go further than that. But yeah, I, I kind of start there because that's the obvious okay. place. Okay. Yeah, because I was thinking about this decision that he made with Bullseye that he had the opportunity to essentially allow for him to die and then right, saved the him. subway track. Yeah. yeah, saved him at the at the last minute. That seems to be a theme in a lot of superhero dilemmas where they actually have the opportunity to finish off the person who is a threat, but they decide to not be the executioner in that moment. Or they decide to even save their lives. It's not just that they decide not to kill the person. They decide to actually mm-hmm. save them when they're under threat of, of being killed by something else. And that's something that I think is an interesting position when it comes to justice, that there has to be a distinction between, let's say, the state and the criminal. And that is the distinction, is that the death of somebody or the execution of somebody, that it's not going to be this random thing. There's going to be a process, if you will, involved, or there's not going to be this torture involved. Even though us as the audience, we probably look at that and think, well, I would have let him go. What are you thinking? Like, I think a lot of us are like, no, 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 don't do it. Because we know that the villain is going to come back. We know that the villain can't change. And so there's a part of us that's torn because we're like, no, 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 but he has to go. But we also want to align ourselves with the good, with the sense of justice, that that is not how you solve a problem. Because if you do that, there's no distinction between the hero and the villain. Exactly, exactly. And and Daredevil is a lot like Batman in that they both ultimately hope for redemption of their foes. They hope that somehow they'll turn around. And, you know, Batman has to deal with the Joker and Daredevil has to deal with Bullseye. And they're both pathological killers. 
and they seem like the last people on earth that would ever redeem themselves. But, you know, Matt, you know, compared to Batman, Matt has, again, this Catholicism that was really bubbling under the surface even before writers like Frank Miller started to bring it out front. And the fact that Matt always hopes that, that his foes, even Bullseye, will come to see the light. He wants to give them that chance. The struggle, the torment, one of Daredevil's, you know, many, many internal torments is that he knows, he's very aware of the fact that when he saves Bullseye's life, he's likely setting him up to kill more people. And in fact, you know, he has people telling him this, uh, the, the detective that's working with him around that time, the episode with Bullseye on the subway track, says he's just going to kill again. And Matt says, well, we don't know that. He might, yeah. And then that's on me, but he might not. And then we've saved a soul. Yeah, you know, I like the fact that you brought up the position that we're in as the reader or the viewer, if we're watching TV or movie, and you think of all the, all the depictions of the, you know, the vigilante uh, the cop, like, you know, your dirty, hairy types, where everything is painted very clearly in good and bad. And so we kind of, you know, hope that they just kill the bad guy and get it over with because the lines are so clearly drawn. And of course, that's not the case in, in the real world. People don't all wear white hats and black hats and so easily divided into good and evil. And to go back to Rudy's point about the law and rules, that's why we have a legal system that investigates and tries and punishes in a more official, dispassionate way, so that we know that if we convict someone of a crime, and if we're going to punish them, and even if to the extreme we're going to execute them, we know that we've done it according to the book, according to the rules, and we're sure beyond a reasonable doubt that this is the right thing to do. Where someone in Daredevil's position, or Dirty Harry's position, or just a, a police officer that's caught the person they've been pursuing for months, and is sure in their mind that this person is guilty, but they may not be thinking thinking of it completely objectively. And that's why we have a system. That's why we have courts. That's why we try to do this as dispassionately as possible. I think there was this part in your book, it's towards the beginning, talking about the deontological position. And there was, I think, it, it, hold on, I'm looking it up. Yeah, it's toward the beginning where you talk about threshold deontology. Um, yeah. That sounds like a closeted utilitarianism to me. <laughs> what is it? So the idea is that we will follow all of the rules and an exception can be if it's really, really extreme. Right. Because, I mean, even, you know, traditionally deontology only allows you to break a rule or a principle if there's another more important rule or principle there. Okay. If you make a promise to your friend, you know, this is an example I use all the time. If you make a promise to your friend to come help them move tomorrow but then your your mother needs you your your mother gets sick and you have to be by her bedside or there's a life-threatening emergency obviously if you can't do both obviously you're going to break the promise to help your friend move to go deal with the more important duty or, or principle you have to follow mm -hmm. okay but what makes us uneasy about threshold deontology and I, I think i understand completely where you're coming from is there we're relaxing a rule or principle for purely consequentialist reasons, because the cost is too high, because the sacrifice is too high. So threshold deontology was introduced by uh, the legal philosopher Michael S. Moore, 
when he was actually talking about torture and saying, you know, it's it's one thing to say torture is absolutely wrong, torture is inhumane, torture is the ultimate offense to human dignity, a liberal state cannot sanction torture. But then the critic comes back and says, sure, fine, great, in an ideal world, we would never have to use it. But if using it, and this comes with a big asterisk, if using it could generate useful information to save a tremendous amount of life, then at what point does adherence to this principle of not using torture become too costly to maintain? And again, that comes with a big asterisk that torture does generate useful information because that's largely a fallacy. But you know, even if it could, again, we've seen the scenario in so many TVs, TV shows and movies. They catch the terrorist. The terrorist presumably knows where the bomb is. They plan to torture the terrorist until they confess where the bomb is and they can find it and defuse it or eliminate it and save the millions of people that would die in the explosion. Like I said, it's a very fanciful way of putting it, but even granting the questionable information you get from using torture, if you increase the number of lives that are at stake high enough, at some point, you're going to question whether adhering to this rigid principle is actually worth mm-hmm. it. Because, I mean, saving lives can be conceptualized as a principle, just like the principle of not using torture. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think of compromising principles for the sake of cost or the sake of avoiding sacrifice, we think of it very selfishly. You know, I won't lie in my job, but he'll, oh, here's a case where I can get a really good promotion, so maybe I will. But it's a different matter entirely when you're when you're talking about imposing a cost on other people of maintaining your principles. And then you're not really engaging the possibly affected persons in your decision. You're making the decision for them. Well, I'm going to adhere to my principle and you may be endangered by it, but I have to stick to my principle. So it's one thing for Matt to say, you know, I'm going to dedicate my life to fighting crime, even though I sacrifice all future happiness and and love in my life. You know, that's that's his own choice. And we can argue whether that's a wise choice or not. But it's another thing for Daredevil to say, I'm going to save Bullseye's life, even though I'm endangering countless people in the future that he may kill. I'm not going to let that cost bother me. And then that decision seems very selfish. You know, I had exactly the same discussion in my Batman book. Yes. And Batman constantly refusing to kill the Joker or, or is his insistence on, again, just like Daredevil, Batman has had several cases where he had to save the Joker. Say he's fighting the Joker, Joker accidentally fell off a cliff and Batman saves him. You can argue he's not morally required to do that unless he pushed him over the cliff. But, you know, if he's just fighting him and he falls over the cliff by accident, I mean, Batman could just hold back for a couple seconds and let the inevitable happen. But the fact that both of these heroes value their personal principle of not killing and not even allowing people to die when they can prevent it above all the possible costs that they're allowing to happen to other people in the future. That definitely gives the threshold deontology concept a lot more credence. Mm -hmm. So it's not just it's not just about rationalizing your decisions. I'll break this rule this once because the cost would be really high. If it's a cost to yourself, that's not really a valid argument. But if it's a cost to somebody else that isn't responsible for upholding your principle, that's a different matter entirely. Since you brought up Batman, I, I was thinking about that parallel with Daredevil, even when it was talking about the romance stuff. Because mm-hmm. what do you think about the psychology of putting these characters together? I mean, it seems like a lot of fun from the outside, like like the wealth, the jumping around, having all these heightened uh, abilities, all of these gadgets, all, all of these things. But 
there was a major cost for that. So with Batman, it would have been the murder of his parents. And then with Daredevil, it's the loss of his eyesight. So there was this major cost to it. What do you make of the significance of that? Because they they wouldn't be the same without that. I think those are two issues because the thing about the Daredevil lose, or Matt losing his sight and Bruce losing his parents is more of the motivating tragedy behind it. And, you know, Peter Parker losing his Uncle Ben, Superman losing his planet, and a lot of superhero origins have that motivating tragedy that then the hero uses their life to avenge that tragedy or to make turn a negative into a positive. And do we need that? That's what I'm wondering. You know, even, even the Fantastic Four crash landing and getting hit by cosmic rays and being transformed, the first thing they say is we have to use these powers for the benefit of mankind. You know, we had this unfortunate accident. It's a sudden, you know, Ben Grimm was disfigured into the thing, but we're going to use this for good. Where I thought you were going with this was the sacrifice they make afterwards. The fact that they devote themselves so extremely to this mission, Batman being the best example of this, that they preclude any real happiness in their lives. They can never have a lasting, truly deep, profound romantic relationship because they're constantly afraid of putting the other person mm-hmm. in danger. Yeah, no, I was thinking about uh, that they, too. They, they can never... Ex- that's that's yeah. what I'm wondering. Is, yeah. is that... Well, I thought that's where yeah. you started. Is that like an... Is that... What does that tell us culturally that the way in which we envision our heroes is with that tragedy and then also with this almost monk-like existence? Because mm-hmm. they all have that theme. Is that a Western theme? Is that... What, they do. They do. What does it mean? Because, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I should, I should you know, write an essay or something collecting all these examples because almost every hero I've written about, and maybe it's just the ones I write about, but I think it's more generally, you know, there's, there's, there, I mean, there's, I'm, I'm in my mind, because I've done it mo- most recently as a, a, a panel of Daredevil, I think I reproduced in one of my Psychology Today blog posts, where he, in the overwrought dramatic language of the era of Stan Lee's writing in the early 60s, you know, when he realizes he can't share a secret with Karen Page's great love, and he can't put her in danger, so he can't ask her to marry him, and he finally says something like, where Daredevil walks, he must walk alone. Mm-hmm. And then there's the same thing in Doctor Strange, because Doctor Strange takes all this responsibility on himself to protect the dimension from all the otherworldly spiritual threats and he can't share his life with anybody and Batman's never been able to, to and so on and so forth all down the line. I mean, Superman gets married, Flash gets married, Spider-Man is occasionally married, but for the most part, especially these superheroes that devote themselves extraordinarily much to their mission and they put everything else aside. I mean, you know, if I were going to be a critic of neoliberalism, I would say that this is a, a bad model for how we treat work because it's basically these heroes putting work above life, you know, not finding good, a good work-life balance. Mm-hmm. When I look at uh, relationship advice, typical advice for young people is, you know, don't pursue intense romantic relationships. You know, certainly date and, and go out with people and stuff. But don't settle down with anybody until you've got your job locked down, until you've got your career locked down. I mean, I've always disagreed with that because work is not more important than romance or or other aspects of your life. It's kind of like equations have to be solved together, not one before the other. And so when I see people asking for advice online, say, well, I'm dating this great person. I think it's really going somewhere, but I have this job offer that's across the country. What do I do? And almost... Always the advice is go for the job. You can find another person. 
And I'm always like, well, is that true necessarily? I mean, in this in, in this specific case, maybe. I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime job and the person actually isn't that great. But without knowing that, why do they automatically privilege the job over the, the love life? You guys, you guys talking about me again? I was going to say, Rudy because flew across is, the country uh, to meet his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you? This is uh, was actually, it your first date for, for five years. Uh, yeah, yeah, and actually for five years we had a commuter marriage. She was um, talk about laws and contracts and rules. She was contractually obligated to stay in New York for her residency, and you know, as a moral person, she didn't want to break that contract because you know, just she could have, but it, there was a lot of reasons not to. And so as a result, um, I, like every two weeks, I would fly to New York. And it's really interesting that you brought up that advice. You need to have a dating podcast <laughs> because what you just said was like really, really very helpful advice, which is, hey, life doesn't stop. Life keeps going. You can't put life on hold and get your quote unquote life in order before you like find somebody because then you're going to miss out on amazing opportunities and you're going to miss that. You're, Actually, learning how to manage your work and manage your family life and manage your romances at the same time is a skill you must <laughs> learn. Because once once you get married, what what do you think? Like it just it just goes into a box. Like you go to work and then this is my work box. You, you, and then you go you, and you take go the home. box and you move on to the next thing. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's it's such 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 really good advice. Task so completed. You know, Mark, just back to this idea, I, I hadn't thought about it, but I'm glad you said it. Like, Rudy's glad you said it, that it is good advice because one of the things with these heroes is this idea that I love you so much that I'm not going to be with you. I love you so much. And it's also, mm -hmm. I think, a part of a sexiness to them because they can't, because you can't have them. So there's also that. But in the right. real world, you can be so energized by love and by friendships that we're assuming that you've got the work intact or the financials stable and then you can have the love, not realizing that it can be the love and the joy from that that actually fuels you to want to be your best self. Yeah, ideally it all works together. I mean, the people who, who recommend you prioritize, even if they prioritize the other way, even if they prioritize love over work, that's still, you know, not not optimal. You want to try to, to solve it all together. And of course, that makes it harder. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the task that I'm, I'm setting to people here. But we do this all the time. We balance so many roles and so many, so many goals in our life and in work and love and family and friendship and hobbies and, you know, whatever else we do that we're doing this already. And, you know, there's sometimes where we're going to pay more attention to the job and sometimes we're going to pay more attention to trying to build a relationship and et cetera. But we're doing them all at the same time. And, and ideally we build them all together. I got married during graduate school. I'm, I'm no longer married to that person, but I got married in graduate school and some people, again, some of these typical typical critics would say, "Oh, you should you should get your PhD and get into a job, and then meet somebody there and get married." But I said, "Why not?" I took it as having a partner while I'm going through these very hard times in life, finishing graduate school, starting a professor job if I was that lucky, and you know, having someone at my side when I'm going through all this. And of course, then I'm also helping her go through. She was graduating from graduate school; she was going to start jobs. Having someone at your side to help through building a career. So you build a career, you build a work life with this person. And I think it helps build all parts of your life in a way that fit together better. 
rather than do one, you know, let's say you get your, your work all together, but then there's certain things about that work that limit the people you can date. Mm-hmm. Okay. For instance, with Rudy and his wife, from what I understand, they, they didn't let geographical issues stand in the way. A lot of people would. I mean, I've, I've heard statistics that most people end up dating or marrying, marrying somebody that lives within a mile of them, which is ridiculous unless you're in some place like New York City where you have a million people mm-hmm. within a mile of you. Still, the, the, you know, if you have a, a job that have a, has a certain lifestyle, has certain demands, like obviously being, a, Rudy, you said your wife was a, a doctor. She was doing a residency. That's a very time intense period, probably one of the most time intense periods in a professional's life. Okay, so she would need to find somebody whose time was flexible enough to fit around her limited free time. What I'm saying is there there are some cases where the nature of a job or the nature of a relationship would limit what you could do in terms of the other side. But if you pursue them both at the same time, you can find two things that fit together. You know, I'm picturing kind of like the double helix, the way that they twist around each other. That if you find the job and the person around the same time and you build both the career and the relationship together, then you build them in a way that fits. This is, Gwen, I'm serious. Mark is a great comic book author. We need to have him on for relationship <laughs> advice. I mean, this is the, I mean, I literally just pictured the double helix and it could, we can like have a whole subcategory where we have Mark and a helix and like two people together, like, and this helix keeps growing together, uh, going on. I mean, it's just really good advice. I mean, God, that's good stuff, Mark. I love it. Sorry, no, I didn't mean to overly flatter you, but it's just beautiful. Because I have, wait, I have one more question. I've, I've enjoyed this so much. I'm just, now I'm thinking about the love thing and just like how it's just so masculine, this idea of a man is on his own and he his love and his protectiveness. So now I'm wondering, are there, um, what about the women superheroes? Do they go through the same thing? I'm not as familiar with the comics. So do they, do they have that same relationship with love or would it not work for a woman superhero? You know, I've never thought of it. That's a, a fantastic you know. question. Yeah. Uh, just cool. off the top of my head, it doesn't seem to be the same. You don't seem to find the women superheroes in, in a, a self-imposed state of loneliness where they're the, the romantic loner out to save the world despite their own losing their own happiness. Because that's a masculine thing. It may be. It may be. The woman's not as likable, I don't think, unless she's got that. This is, I'm not agreeing with this position. I'm just wondering if that's the, right. if that right. is the position. Yeah, because I mean, I, I can imagine it would be less popular to have a, a woman superhero saying, I can't be with you, Bill, <laughs> because I'm afraid of you getting hurt. You know, that would be emasculating for Bill. So <laughs> if, it, Bill. if it was a lesbian superhero with a, a woman lover, I think that would that would be seen as less mm-hmm. problematic. But that's a great question. I never really thought about that. This is good. I mean, I'm trying to go through the prominent women superheroes, and most of them either have fairly stable relationships or their romantic lives aren't emphasized in the comics. But I, I don't remember any of them having this dramatic, you know, what I do, I must do alone, kind of come to Damascus on your own moment. I love the discussion on Daredevil. I'm obviously, I love talking about human imperfection 
And because I'm so imperfect and I'm struggling with that, but boy, the nuggets that you two pulled out of this when you're talking about the love and the romance and it's good stuff. You two need to talk romance and have these questions a lot more. This is good stuff. <laughs> you're writing yourself out of the podcast, Rudy. Yeah, and well, you know, I'm, because I'm because I'm just a fool. You know, I'm I, I'm I'm not gonna. I, no one should listen to me. Fool for love. Yeah. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. You could also join our Patreon, patreon.com slash good is in the details. We've got extra content for you and a book club. Thank you, Mark, for joining the pod again. And for everyone listening, remember to check out CLM Creations for your volumizer brush and use offer code GOOD15 for a discount. When you support our sponsors, you're also supporting the podcast. Okay, until next time. Bye.